You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight, as every night, from the palatial home recording studios of the Corbett Report here in the sunny climes of Western Japan. So once again, thank you all for tuning in for tonight's edition of the broadcast. And tonight is Friday night, so we're going to engage in the Friday night highlight routine, whereby we take a look at some of the work that I've done at CorbettReport.com over the past five years and dredge through the archives for some hidden gems and long-forgotten interviews, etc. And tonight we're going to be highlighting the work, uh, picking up from something we were looking at earlier this week, which was the work of Pepe Escobar at Asia Times Online and many other news outlets besides. And we're going to be listening to some excerpts from a few of the interviews that I've done with Pepe in the past. So for people who might be new to CorbettReport.com in general, this might be a good chance to familiarize yourself with just some of the work that I've done in the past. And I've now had the pleasure of interviewing Pepe, I believe, four previous times over the past year and a bit. So uh, if for people who are interested in what I've covered in the past, and uh, the archives are very, very vast now and, and growing by the day, so you will be forgiven for not being completely familiar with them. If you want to see if I've had a certain guest on or covered a certain topic, there is a search bar at the top of CorbettReport.com. Just enter your search term in there, and it will show all the work that I've done on that particular topic or by that keyword or uh, by that guest name. And uh, for example, if you enter Escobar, you can see the various videos and interviews that I've uh, created with Pepe's input over the past year and uh, year and a bit anyway. Um, so on that note, we're going to be taking a look at a, a few of the interviews we've done before. And on tonight's broadcast, we're going to be starting out with an interview that I did in November of last year with Pepe on the issue of pipelineistan, which is uh, Pepe's term for the ways that the pipeline politics are really hardwiring in a lot of uh, alliances and uh, and really making the geopolitics of the Eurasian and Middle Eastern regions that much more concrete and and re- uh, real and f- rather than figurative. So it's a it's a very fascinating process. And for people who haven't been paying attention to the pipeline politics in that region, it is absolutely fascinating. But it is changing by the day. So please. Keep in mind that this conversation that we had was conducted back in November of last year, so quite a lot has transpired over the previous nine months now uh, since this conversation took place, but still I think it's a good introduction to the topic. So this was conducted back in November of 2011, and shortly thereafter uh, I used excerpts from this interview in two different eye-opener reports, one on Meet the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and one on Pipeline Politics and the Rewiring of Eurasia. So then in the segment after that, we're going to be turning back the clock. We're going to go and look at an interview that I conducted with Pepe back in September of last year when we were talking about the Palestinian Authority's bid for membership status at the UN, which I believe has hit something of a uh, a dead end at this point, or at least is uh, not going to make much progress given the current political climate. 
But at the time, there was quite a bit of talk about what this uh, deal meant and and the way that it would uh, it, uh, it, the way that it would happen if it was going to happen at all. So uh, we'll hear Pepe's thoughts on that and how Israel and America are reacting to that Palestinian Authority bid for membership and full status at the UN. And then uh, finally, tonight, we're going to listen to uh, an extended excerpt from a very, very interesting conversation that uh, Pepe and I had on R2P, the Responsibility to Protect. And I'm sure if you've been listening to my work for any length of time, you'll be familiar with this concept. But if not, we'll go a little bit into the depth, in depth into the history of this concept, where it came from, and uh, how it's being used to, to create these humanitarian love bombings all over the world. And we'll be listening to specifically um, some some excerpts from this interview that was conducted in March of this year and was uh, featured in a GRTV feature interview called R2P, Imperial Conquest by Another Name. So that's the uh, the playlist. That's the order for tonight's uh, program. Uh, I will be back at the end of tonight's broadcast to wrap things up. But until then, we'll just be listening to those excerpts. And the uh, the links to all of these things, of course, will be up at CorbettReport.com. So hang on right there. We'll be right back with Pepe Escobar. Excellent. Well, I, it's a pleasure to have you here today to talk about a subject that I know you know very well. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the subject of the Caspian Basin, the energy-rich, geostrategically important Caspian Basin, and the energy corridor that's developing around it, which you have colorfully termed Pipelinistan. Pipelinistan. So um, I'd love to hear more about that. And, and I think in order to get everybody on the same page so that we all know what we're talking about, perhaps you can give us an overview of the region and some of the main power players in it. Well, uh, the power play gets more complicated by the minute. Basically, it's a Russia, China, three of the five uh, Central Asian stands, basically Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, Iran, and Turkey. So, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's an area that spans uh, most of Eurasia, if we, if we look at it. And in terms of... Uh, energy sources, oil and gas, uh, if you consider Russia and the Central Asian stands, it's uh, the other major Persian Gulf, let's put it this way, many times over, in fact, because Russia, the largest oil reserves in the world, and also the largest gas reserves in the world. Russia exports more oil than Saudi Arabia. This is something probably many people don't know. They export over 10 million barrels a day, which is over 1 million barrels more than Saudi Arabia. And on top of it, they have the largest gas reserves on the planet. Uh, okay, uh, Iran is a match. Turkmenistan could be a match. Qatar is a match, but Russia is still ahead of everybody else. So what we have, well, I turn pipelinistan because yes, it, the chessboard, the, the main players are pipelines. At the same time, these pipelines, they hardwire countries. So if you have a pipeline, the chances of having a war against your neighbor 
decreased significantly, right? So the power play is especially between the U.S. and Europeans to a certain extent because they badly need energy, especially from Russia. And on the other side, we have the Chinese. The Russians, they are playing to both sides. They're playing to Asia and they are playing to Europe. The American companies, they are more or less excluded from it, but the U.S. would like to more or less coordinate what the European policy on energy is. Uh, the Europeans themselves, they are lost in space because what they really wanted, which was to import gas from Iran, they cannot do it because of the U.N. and U.S. sanctions. Turkey is a crucial uh, transit country. And the, the, the key players in, in, in Central Eurasia, the Central Asian stands, they want to sell gas to everybody, especially Turkmenistan, which is a gas republic, more or less like Qatar, in fact. So it's an incredibly complex uh, um, chessboard. You have to keep it up on a weekly basis is already a nightmare. You know, in my case, I spent a few weeks without following it closely because I was following the Arab Spring or Lib and all that. When you come back, the amount of information is staggering. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. But, uh, you know, after a while, you tend to see where the whole thing is going. So this is what we're going to talk about now, I assume. Absolutely right. And it is, I mean, there's a lot to take in and a lot to go over, but I think some people are familiar with some of the the very big things that have gone on in the past, including, of course, the uh, the BTC. And there are a lot of acronyms in this area, as you've pointed out in your writings. And don't ask me (laughs) off the top of my head what BTC is. But uh, one of the ones that... But at least you say, the three major cities, right? Right, right, right. Which most people never heard about. Exactly right. And that's part of the point and something I'd like to ask you about a bit later. But one of the things that's come on the radar recently for me is the TCGP, the Trans-Caspian Gas Pipeline. Um, Perhaps you can tell us about this project and some of the politics. It's a horrible acronym, by the way, isn't it? Yes. Nobody's going to pronounce TCGP anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't they call it Trans-Caspian Pipeline? Which was the... They call it Trans-Caspian Pipeline in the 90s when this was a brilliant idea. Uh, the America thought it was a fantastic idea. But, uh, you know, the technical, political, economic ways of implementing were nil. Nowadays, the Europeans, because they are so desperate to get gas from Turkmenistan, the only way Europe can get gas from Turkmenistan via what they called the Nabucco pipeline, and then comes the opera angle, Verdi, right? Is if they get gas from Turkmenistan going to Azerbaijan across the Caspian, and then from Azerbaijan, this gas is distributed uh, via Turkey to Europe. So the European Commission, which is the executive branch of the European Union, they are doing everything they can to you know, find the money, find the buyers, discuss pricing, uh, observe all the legal aspects of building something in the Caspian, which is, there are five countries bordering the Caspian. There are some very nasty legal aspects that have not been solved. So basically, they came to the conclusion, yes, you can build, legally you can build an underground pipeline from uh, at the bottom of the Caspian Sea, from uh, Western Turkmenistan to basically to Baku, yeah? uh, and then 
you, you build the rest of Nabucco. The problem is Nabucco is going to cost more than 20 billion euros. Nobody has that kind of money to invest in a depressing economy, especially in Europe at the moment. And Turkmenistan, they keep playing the game all the time. Ah, yes, oh, we would love to uh, diversify our energy foreign policy and sell to our European comrades and all that. But then starts the haggling, the pricing. Uh, will they have enough gas to supply not only China, which they already do, but also Europe? So there are so many ifs, and meanwhile the bill keeps on going up. Now the last figure that I that I checked, which was a few days ago, is 22 billion <laughs> euros for for Nabucco, including the Trans-Caspian underground pipeline. So nobody knows if this is going to be built. Uh, it depends. One, the European Commission finding enough uh, sources of investment. Number two. Make sure that Turkmenistan has enough gas to divert uh, to this pipeline and to Europe. And number three, what is Turkmenistan's game? And nobody really knows because the ruler, the spectacularly named Gurbanguli Berdimukabedov, <laughs> which is the successor of Niyazov, which was a surrealist Kafkaesque uh, character. And Gurbanguli is a, a more, a, let's say, a more Pop, uh, pop version of Niazov. You know, there's a video of uh, Gurbanguly on YouTube singing a folk song that apparently he composed. That is one of the most outrageously <laughs> funny things you can watch on YouTube. You know, I seriously recommend to your viewers check it out. So we don't know what what Gurbanguly is going to do actually. And on the other side, the Chinese. You know what the Chinese did? They went to, to Gurbanguly, to Niazov, in fact, years ago directly. They said, look, uh, we need your gas. We built the whole thing. We built the whole pipeline. Just give us a good price and forget about the rest. So, you know, for, for two years now, they're getting Turkmen gas via a pipeline that they built from Turkmenistan, crossing Uzbekistan to Western China. The, the Europeans in, a, in the economy, like in the state that, that we know at the moment, where are they going to find 22 billion uh, euros among uh, five or six countries that are heavily interested uh, between North, North, Northern Europe and Southern Europe to build, uh, to build this pipeline? I don't think this is going to happen, at least in the next few years. It seems unrealistic, doesn't it? And as you point out, there's a lot of um, things that go into these types of pipelines in, gar in regards to the, the deals that have to be made between different countries that it crosses through. Perhaps you can talk about some of those types of politics that are involved with these types of deals. It's extremely complex. Look, I'll give, I'll give an example in Europe. Uh, Russia came up with a brilliant idea of building two different pipelines to, to sell gas to Europe. The Nord Stream and the South Stream. The South Stream is competing with Nabucco. Nabucco is the preferred European American option. And South Stream is the Russian option. But it's cheaper and can be built in record time, unlike Nabucco, which they don't even know where the money is coming from, right? And Nord Stream, uh, was already built in record time, respecting a lot of very complex ecological regulations because it goes through the Baltic. And the Baltic states, they said, no, protect the ecology, otherwise don't, don't even think about it. And the Russians did it. It didn't cost, okay, it cost a fortune. It cost at least $15 billion, the last uh, number that we had, maybe more. 
But this politically, it was very clever because there was one guy who pulled that off. And his name is Vladimir Putin. And why? Because he dealt directly with heads of government. In the case of uh, Germany, uh, Putin dealt with uh, Gerhard Schroeder when he was still prime minister. And no wonder that Gerhard Schroeder is one of the major shareholders of the consortium that operates Nord Stream. And with South Stream, Putin dealt directly with Berlusconi until virtually yesterday. And that's why South Stream, in, ter- in terms of uh, pro- uh, uh, supplying uh, South Europe, is on a much better stage than uh, Nabucco. Because Nabucco is a mess. They don't, even governments don't agree. But South Stream, because the Russians dealt directly with governments, and government of Hungary as well, they offered a lot of stuff, uh, building plants, you name it. So uh, Putin, uh, the... the the Putin strategy, when you look at it, is absolutely brilliant. Because not, not only he cornered most of the European market, north and south. Uh, to give an idea, Gazprom now supplies 25% of uh, Europe's gas. And they uh, plan to get to 30% in three or four years. That's amazing. you know. So this means, that, yes, Europe is dependent on uh, Russian gas. But because the Russians knew how to negotiate. And if you go to Brussels and you talk to those bureaucrats in Brussels, they're always complaining that the Russians are tough negotiators. No, they're good negotiators. <laughs> That's another story. Yeah. Wow, look. <laughs> in fact, I've been losing sleep lately thinking, what is the Bibi Netanyahu government is thinking actually lately? Because they have managed to antagonize the only two powers that were more or less supportive of Israel in the region, Turkey and Egypt. We know what happened in Egypt a few days ago when the so-called mob invaded the Israeli embassy in Cairo. That was not a mob. This was part of protesters that have been in Tahrir Square since February. And if you talk to the average Egyptian in Cairo or anywhere else in Egypt, and you start talking about the Camp David Accords, I would bet with anybody that at least 95% of them will say, okay, look, let's abrogate the Camp David Accords now or yesterday. Obviously, considering that we are in a situation that we have a undisguised military dictatorship in Cairo at the moment, and Tantawi, by the way, was very, very close with all past governments in Israel, Omert, Livni, Barak, Bibi, you name it. Nothing's going to happen nowadays. But if we have free and fair elections in Egypt, if we have a really sovereign government in Egypt elected by the people, the first thing in terms of foreign policy they're going to do is let's review the Camp David Accords. So what happened in Egypt a few days ago in Cairo is a taste of things to come. And then there's the other aspect, which is the Turkey angle. As we speak, at the moment, Turkey practically cut off diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, This is because of the Mavi Marmara incident, of course, and the fact that the Israeli government still refuses to make a formal apology for the Mavi Marmara because they allege it was in self-defense. Obviously, Turkey, they have a, a policy they call zero problems with their neighbors, elaborated by their foreign minister, Professor Davutoglu. Great scholar, it's a great policy. It had been working until recently, but there are now two huge cracks. Israel and what to do about Syria. So in terms of Syria, the Turks are more or less backtracking and say, look, let's try to give the benefit of the doubt. 
let's lay, let's, let's say few more weeks at least to Bashar al-Assad. So we try to keep what we built in these past two years or so, which is the Tehran-Ankara-Damascus alliance in terms of foreign policy, in terms of integrating the region. The problem is now that uh, Turkey has to face this uh, Israeli intransigence. And now they came to the conclusion that there's no way there can be any negotiation with a government headed by VB, controlled by settlers, basically, and with uh, Lieberman, former Moldova bouncer, as foreign minister. So this is the, you know, more or less the landscape as Israel gets to this meeting at the UN. What's going to happen over there? Of course, nobody has a crystal ball. We have an idea what is going to happen in terms of the uh, UN General Assembly. We're going to have 140, 150 countries, at least, from all over the world, different continents, maybe not including the European Union as a bloc, voting in favor of the Palestinian Authority being admitted at UN as a state and not as an observer anymore. So what's going to happen after next? So this means the world gives a moral vote of approval for the idea of the Palestine, uh, of a Palestine state, even though it's not the reality of a Palestine state. Because what does the government of uh, BB want, basically? A collection of Bantustans, which is not a sovereign state, with no uh, defined borders, because Israel itself has no defined borders, with no independent foreign policy, incapable uh, of patrolling their own airspace and the seas in front of Gaza, for instance. So this is unacceptable in terms of international law. But from the point of view of the Palestinians, this is a first step. Because then, they can, if they are admitted as a state by the UN, they can, for instance, start suing the Israeli states for all sorts of misdeeds. They will be supported by most of the real international community, not the US-NATO countries compound that they call international units. Uh, so what would be the next step? Would be for the US and uh, the EU to recognize Palestine. We know the U.S. won't do it for obvious reasons that everybody knows. The way Washington works, the way the Israeli lobby works over Washington. The EU is very complicated. Like until two days ago, Sarkozy in Paris was saying, look, the EU has to vote as a bloc. But nobody knows if they're going to vote for or against it. Even, even assuming they will vote for uh, at the floor, if this thing goes to the uh, Security Council, it's almost certain that the U.S., Britain, and France would vote against it, even though uh, you don't need the Security Council vote to legitimize a session of a state. This is done by the General Assembly. So it will be clear who's against the idea of a Palestine state if this thing goes to the Security Council. So this is the only uh, card left for the Palestinians at the moment. Look, let's have... a. Uh, global public opinion on our side. And then we don't know what's going to happen next because it will depend on the Israeli response. And the Israeli response, considering the facts on the ground, which is let's build more settlements and let's not negotiate. And considering the formation of this BB government could be a really hardcore response, right? 
Absolutely. Well, uh, you bring up so many good points there, but um, but one point that I I don't really know. You, you bring up the point that this uh, accession, uh, the membership bid would would be taking place in the general assembly, not the security council. What is the the procedure for this? Is it simply a majority vote? Yes, it is a majority vote. So if you have one hundred and four and one hundred and fifty, and most of them are already committed, you know that's it. It's a simple majority. That's what you, that's what is required. So now we have one hundred and ninety three states in the UN, I think, and now it's Southern Sudan one hundred and ninety four. If you have one hundred and fifty, it's in the bag. It don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is swing. It don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is sing. It makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. Just give it everything you've got. Oh, it don't mean a thing. All you've got to do is swing. As the world recovers from one humanitarian peace bombing in Libya and braces for another possible intervention in Syria, many are now asking how it is that the so-called liberal left have become cheerleaders for the very wars of aggression they once pretended to deride. As longtime investigative reporter Pepe Escobar explains, an obscure international doctrine called Responsibility to Protect, or R2P, has been the main tool for shaping this new paradigm for the continuation of NATO's imperial power grabs around the world. This is the GRTV Feature Interview with your host, James Corbett, and our special guest, Pepe Escobar. Yes, uh, look, uh, R2P became famous all over the world, of course, because of Libya last year. But this is a long story. This is a 10-year-long story. Probably many people don't remember that. So I think it's important to come back to 2001, when the original concept was actually masterminded by this uh, fabulously named International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. This was actually a panel. It uh, was sponsored by the Canadian government, by the way, with some foundations backing it. And the leader was uh, definitely not a warmonger, was a very, uh, very good guy, to put it this uh, simply. Uh, the former Australian Prime Minister, Gareth Evans. So, the idea, the original idea, was, uh, I quote them, international community had a moral duty to, in terms of humanitarian intervention. So, the original idea, of course, was altruistic. Uh, they were probably thinking about Rwanda. They were probably thinking about the Congo. They were probably even thinking about the Khmer Rouge in the 70s, right? So, but let's see how this evolved in the long run. In 2004, this original idea was already being debated at the UN. And Kofi Annan established a panel to debate it. Uh, And the Security Council was uh, very interested in authorizing, I quote them, the Security Council, military intervention only as a last resort. So they kept the original idea of that uh, international commission that, that, that we mentioned a while ago. Uh, and very, very important. 
Military intervention, like we saw in Libya last year, only as a last resort. Uh, then we get to 2005, very important, when the UN General Assembly, at the time 191 countries, they endorsed a resolution that would support R2P, but there was no vote about it, okay? Very important, always considering that no military intervention was in the cards. And finally, in 2006, the UN Security Council, only the 15, the, fi the five plus the other non-permanent members, they voted a resolution number 1674. And this resolution was uh, uh, basically the, the core of R2P, involved in protecting civilians in armed conflict and protecting civilians from, I quote them again, Genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. So, if we look at this timeline, it's, uh, it looks very altruistic no? and very humanitarian. But the thing is how major foreign powers were going to use this uh, carte blanche from the UN Security Council. This didn't happen in 2007, 2008, 2009, but it happened in 2010, but it happened in 2011. This didn't happen, for instance, in late 2008, early 2009, when Israel invaded Gaza, bombed Gaza, and killed at least, documented, 1,400 people, including a lot of women and children. Nobody talked about R2P. But last year, with the... How can, how can I describe Libya? With the, that mix of uh, forced intervention, uh, indigenous movement, uh, military coup, you name it, fill in the blanks. They saw an opening. And when I say they, I mean especially three of the five permanent members of, of the Security Council. The U.S., Britain, and France. Uh, we have analyzed extensively, including you, James, in your, in your reports, all the hidden reasons and all the different agendas for intervention in Libya. But in the case of applying R2P, there were three people who were instrumental in uh, regimenting the U.S. support and uh, trying to convince other members that this was uh, the way to go in uh, 2011. I call them the three graces. Hillary Clinton, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice, and special advisor to President Obama, Samantha Power, who was very close to Sergio Vieira de Mello when Sergio was uh, at the UN. Sergio was uh, the special envoy to Iraq when he was killed in, uh, in Baghdad in 2003. So, these three graces, they organized uh, the media push, uh, the one message for the Obama administration, uh, the talks between the U.S., uh, the European, especially Britain and France, and other members of the of the Security Council at the time, especially Arab members, and of course the Persian Gulf monarchies. So they sold the world the idea that they were intervene. They will. They would intervene in Libya to prevent a humanitarian massacre that was not documented, and we later discovered was not happening notion that major powers like the U.S. or even lesser powers like Britain and France, that they uh, conduct their foreign policy based on humanitarian principles is an absolute 
joke. And the proof was last year in Libya. Unfortunately so, and I think you, you bring out very well the, the fundamental underlying hypocrisy that this is applied and invoked in situations where it's amenable to the foreign interests of, of Britain or France or America or Israel or any, you know, fill in the blank, but uh, is obviously not used in situations like in the occupation of Gaza. So, so I, I think that's a very blatant hypocrisy that's very uh, evident to a lot of people, but clearly doesn't function at the institutional level. I mean, what at what point does that disconnect become so blatant that the, the vast majority of the people won't go along with this responsibility to protect agenda? Well, the thing is, uh, uh, the, the way R2P was manipulated to legitimize the invasion, bombing, and fragmentation of Libya, because this is what's happening nowadays. Look at what Libya is post-NATO intervention. It's a totally failed state run by militias. And nobody cares about what's going on in Libya. Proof number one, it disappeared from the news cycle completely. Proof number two, what only matters to the so-called international community, which, as we know, is comprised of uh, U.S., Britain, France, uh, Tel Aviv, and the Persian Gulf monarchies, and nobody else, maybe Turkey sometimes, or Japan or South Korea. This is the international community. Uh, The only thing that mattered for them was uh, uh, the oil, gas, and Further on, the water, of course. This is in terms of the three major uh, French water companies. And nobody cares what's going to happen to Libya. Libya is going to be mired in civil war for years and probably decades from now on. But nobody cares. Okay. The thing is, uh, a lot of uh, very important countries at the moment, including the four top BRIC, now it's BRICS with South Africa, but the four top BRIC, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and Germany, they saw how R2P would be instrumentalized to become an, uh, basically uh, the entry point for an armed intervention, which is condemned by the original idea of R2P itself, as we were talking a while ago, right? So that's why that explains why they abstained from the vote in UN uh, Security Resolution 1973. They got together before the vote. The BRICs were all uh, in favor. South Africa didn't uh, abstain because they got a phone call from Obama. Obama was on the phone with President Zuma for more than an hour and said, look, if you don't vote for us with this, you're going to be in trouble. And Germany as well was aligned with the BRIC in this vote. They knew what would happen later. That's exactly what we all know happened later, right? So it's a major hypocrisy because they knew that this was being instrumentalized at the time by the three Western powers at the UN Security Council. Uh, later, they say, look, uh, if, you, if you do this with, uh, and at the, at the time, in fact, if you do this with Libya, why don't you do this with Bahrain? Silence. <laughs> Total silence, right? Why don't you do this with, uh, pro, uh, in, in fact, what's going on in, in eastern Saudi Arabia nowadays, which is never reported, including in Arab media, which is, most of it controlled by Saudi Arabia and Qatar, it's, uh, they are killing civilians also in eastern Saudi Arabia, and we don't know about it. We, he- we hear about it by some uh, dissident Arab bloggers here and there. But this is a slow-motion process. You could compare it with what was happening in Bahrain, and you could compare it with what's happening in many other uh, Arab countries. But there's, the only interference is in a secular Arab republic. 
which is the case of Libya, and was once again invoked in the case of Syria. But now, <laughs> Russia and China were very much alert to what happened before. They knew that what happened before would happen, so they voted two possible UN Security Council resolutions, which would regiment R2P as an intervention in Syria. So another thing, well, the case of Gaza is so blatant that we, we don't even need to repeat it, right? Why R2P was not invoked these past few years to prevent what we can describe very accurately, I would say, as a slow-motion genocide of the Palestinian population? We all know the answers for that. The U.S. will always veto it. And China was thinking, look, one of these days they're going to use R2P to go against us in terms of what's going on in Tibet and Xinjiang, especially in Tibet. What's been going on in Tibet, maybe it's not a genocide, but civilians are being killed in Tibet on a constant basis, at least since the late 1990s. Only to talk about this past 10 years. In order to talk about the span covered by R2P, when they started discussing R2P in 2001. In, uh, in Xinjiang, it's the same thing. Xinjiang, there are 500,000 Chinese troops basically occupying Xinjiang, which is an, basically an immense desert with one big city, Urumqi, uh, a lot, lots of villages and the rest is desert, but with lots of oil and gas and very close to Central Asia and close to Russia as well. It's a very strategic area for, for China. And China simply cannot envision any splittists, as they call it, uh, movement in Xinjiang, right? Uh, Russia was saying, look, maybe they could use uh, this against us in terms of Chechnya. In Chechnya, in Chechnya there was, or there has been since the mid to late 80s, uh, a civil war going on that was won by the Russian army at the price of a slow-motion genocide as well, by all means. So, it depends, of course, on which uh, major foreign power is conducting uh, the uh, framing of R2P. If it's uh, the U.S., Britain, and France, it works because it's for our Western interests, right? But when... and. Uh, well, if it's going to be directed against Russia and China, other big powers, they know there's absolutely no chance that this will go on because it will be vetoed at the UN Security Council. So in terms of a, an international consensus about RTOP, there is none whatsoever, right? Uh, so we're going to see RTOP being implemented as long as Western powers especially find a window of opportunity to get a vote at the UN. If they don't get a vote at the UN, we're going to see what we're seeing in, in Syria at this moment, which is Saudi Arabia arming jihadis or Salafis in Syria and betting on a civil war, basically. And now with the help, uh, as a matter of public record, in fact, of the United States. So let's flesh out that narrative a bit, because it seems like you're painting a picture that uh, in the Libyan example, Russia and China abstained, and in they learned their lesson from that. In Syria, they've they've uh, vetoed the resolutions trying to, to implement the same policy. So does that indicate that from here on out, we can expect to see Russia and China giving more pushback to this idea? 
Yeah, definitely. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, and the non-aligned countries as well. We cannot forget that 120 plus members of the non-aligned countries. Many of these countries are not exactly Western liberal democracies, as we know. And many fear that R2P could be used against themselves. So uh, the, the, the original idea of R2P, of course, it is very altruistic and it is a fabulous idea. But why nobody thought about that before or during the Rwanda massacre? Why nobody thought about that, uh, you know, the genocide in Palestine, the slow motion genocide in Palestine has been going on for 50 years. And I, I can't imagine that nobody at the UN or uh, high-minded politicians such as uh, Gareth Evans in, in Australia never thought about uh, implementing R2P at the UN Security Council level. So why now, right? Why now? Because now we are watching a total reformulation of that axis from uh, no Northern Africa to the Middle East which is part of what the Pentagon used to call arc of instability. There's a lot of uh, what uh, American neocons uh, gleefully call creative destruction going on. So if you can advance uh, a Western agenda in terms of Mediterranean, the Mediterranean as a NATO lake or more pro-Western governments in all these countries, a less uh, unsavory dictatorship but still defending interests of Western companies and Western governments in that area. Why not? So uh, any weapon is available. Any weapon is good, including R2P. Podcast friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you have been tuned into the Corbett Report Radio program here on Republic Broadcasting. As tonight, we've been dipping into the CorbettReport.com archives for some of my previous conversations with Pepe Escobar of Asia Times Online and many, many other sites besides. So I suggest that you do a quick startpage.com search for Pepe Escobar if you're unfamiliar with some of his writings and works. But uh, absolutely, a lot of valuable information every time you speak to Pepe, and he has a very uh, 
a wide range of knowledge and, a, and quite a lively and vivacious way of putting it. So I understand that uh, that he is a good source to go to on a lot of these issues. And I'm sure we'll have him back on the broadcast again in the future. So that's going to do it for tonight in terms of uh, that. And I hope that uh, once again, you will use the Corbett Report archives as the resource that it is. I've spent uh, hundreds and hundreds, in fact, thousands and thousands of hours now putting this media together and releasing it free and commercial free. And it's freely available for download. So I hope you will go to CorbettReport.com and start downloading uh, these reports. And as always, if you do appreciate the work, all I ask is that, one, you spread the word about this work and any particular interview or radio show or podcast or video or article that you find particularly valuable. I hope you will help uh, spread that word to others. Uh, At the very least, just spread the information. I don't care if you actually spread my particular work on the subject. The information is what's important. And secondly, if you do appreciate the work that I've been doing on these issues, I do appreciate your support out there, and I do rely on your support in order to keep this going, as uh, this is listener-supported media. So details on how you can support the Corbett Report monetarily can be found on CorbettReport.com slash support. So that's going to do it for another week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio. Again, quite an interesting week focusing quite a bit on the Asian region with uh, talking about the Tokyo Tea Party, talking about Australian perspective on the Asia-Pacific region, and, uh, and of course, also looking at some truth music. So a very interesting week and another interesting week lined up for you next week where we're going to be traveling uh, through the wonders of Skype to Malaysia and to Korea for some of our guests next week. So again, another interesting week on the broadcast and also for people out there who are interested interested in and or subscribed to my podcast feed. You might notice that I had the week off last week, but I will be uh, putting out a new podcast episode again starting next week and uh, every week thereafter. I will be putting out podcast episodes. Once again, that goes up on Mondays on CorbettReport.com. And there are also videos and interviews and articles and other goodies that go up there on pretty much a daily basis. So once again, if you want to subscribe to the RSS feeds, those are completely free and you can subscribe and stay up to date with all of the various work that I'm putting out there on CorbettReport.com. And uh, also, just on another note, uh, for people who are interested in my subscriber-only newsletter, uh, we will be, of course, releasing another edition of the newsletter tomorrow. That's Saturday. Every Saturday, the newsletter will go out. This Saturday, I have my International Forecaster editorial. will be on a rock and a hard place uh, navigating the bankster's trap, talking about the dialectic and the ways that we can be really uh, engineered into supporting one side or another of a false choice and making that false choice our unfortunate political reality. So a lot to think about there, and I hope you will join me for that by subscribing to that Corbett Report newsletter for as little as 100 Japanese yen a month, although there are different options if you'd like to contribute more to help support this work. Once again, I want to thank each and every one of you out there for listening and for helping to spread this word, and for those of you who are subscribers to my work or buy my DVDs, thank you so much. I could not do this without you, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again uh, next week. So until then, thank you all for listening, and take care.